The first three centuries of the church struggled in a Roman empire that was suspicious and demeaning of Christianity. It saw Christians as atheists denying the power of the gods. And it saw Christians as antisocial, critical of the conventional culture. To Rome, the gospel undermined. It threatened their way of life. Today in America, uh, we see America increasingly placing Christianity in a similar context. Christians are outsiders living in the world, but not of it. And so Peter writes his letter to such outsiders. If our faith is, to, is, if our faith is to survive this generation, we must adopt Peter's message and adapt to living on the outside. And that is in a nutshell what's going on. So you'll see in first Peter one verse one that he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in this fivefold region covering 300,000 square miles in the Asia Minor, Northern Asia Minor region. And then to top it off, he bookends the letters, opening with the exile theme, ending with the exile theme by saying in verse 13 that she who is at Babylon sends you greetings. So Peter's writing from Rome. He says, uh, she who's from Babylon, the church that meets in Babylon. Babylon is just code for Rome. When you're a persecuted people, you don't always reveal where your leaders are. So Peter, writing to his exiles, writing to his outsiders, is giving them a manual, a survival guide to, hey, this is how you're going to engage your culture in your new realized position. So we've seen Peter remind us that the way that we're going to do this is twofold. We're going to hold on to hope. Hope is that act of looking forward. This outside position is not our destination. We will be insiders in God's kingdom. And hope is looking forward to that identity, that home, that belonging. So hope is going to be one of our survival tools. Second is holiness. We looked at last week. We have to hold on to holiness when we're on the outside. And holiness, if, if hope is looking forward, holiness is living backward. It's living in the opposite direction that the society is living in. So we have hope, we have holiness, looking forward, living backward. What we're going to talk about tonight is this whole idea of holding on in hardship. I see that God has his hand in our hardships. I see that God uses hardship in our life to create us into heavenly creatures. That when we go through things for Jesus that aren't easy, we're going through things that make us have to push a little harder, just general hardship, that God uses these things to shape us, to recreate us, to make us stronger, to bring us more and more conformed into his image, that the pressure is making us into something. So that we don't have to worry about the hardship and we don't have to look at it as something that has to be avoided at all costs. But we can look at it and say, I see that God is going to use this in some way. I can hold on tightly in the midst of this and I can push on through because God has a plan in this. That's what Peter is going to teach us is that God uses our hardships. The problem is that we a don't believe that all the time. Oh, I'm sure he uses most hardships, but this one? And B, our human nature by default hates hardship. Our human nature by default hates hardship. This was uh, up on the screen. This is... 
Pixar's movie-making formula. So Pixar bringing you Toy Story and Finding Nemo and all the other big animation hits. This is their threefold formula for their movies. They tell their stories in three acts. Now, this is going somewhere, so hang in. So in Act 1, it's always got the adventure needs to happen. There's a problem, and the protagonist, our character, uh, he is called to the adventure, and he accepts it. He goes on it. Uh, you know, Marlin loses his son Nemo. There's the adventure. i got to go find my son. Um, in Act 2, it now goes to, okay, how are you going to solve this problem? How are you going to bring resolution? Well, there are two ways to go about it. Comfort or cost. And usually you see the character trying to solve the problem with every comfortable means available. Until they've exhausted their comfortable resources, they come to the bottom, to the end of themselves, and they see there, finally, the true cost of what it's going to take to solve the problem. And then third, Act 3, they learn their lesson, they see what it costs, and so they have to show proof of their decision. They, okay, I know now how to solve the problem, now you actually have to pay the price. You have to do that cost it takes in order to fix the problem. And the reason why Pixar is very successful and their stories are very amazing, despite the fact that they went actually against the, the animation movie culture of the day. Uh, the culture of the day was lots of singing. Think of like Little Mermaid and Disney um, cartoons. Uh, a lot of singing. They said, we're not going to do that Disney formula. We're going to do our own formula. And they succeeded because their story formula understands something about human nature is that we are born in a struggle and we live in hardship and life is an adventure. But the human problem is that we continually try to solve the problem with the easiest, most comfortable route possible. And we crave that comfort and we look for it. And we never get anywhere unless we're willing to look at the cost. So this is our problem, is that we prefer comfort over the cost. And that's because of sin. That's our fallen humanity. We want to self-protect ourselves. We want our lives wrapped in bubble wrap if we can. And we want everybody else to be in danger, but let me stay in my self-contained, decontaminated, disinfected, perfectly humidified, air-conditioned space. Don't touch it. And so this is why sometimes we are having a hard time seeing that God actually doesn't just permit. Like, well, sure, that hardship can happen because it's fine. Like, I know Job can handle it. No, he, he uses the hardship. It's as if Satan is swinging a hammer at us all the time, but God is there holding the chisel between us and the hammer. See, as Satan might swing the hammer, God is holding that chisel. And that's how we're going to see this in Peter, is that we feel the pressure coming. We feel like we're being bombarded and pounded. And it seems like, right? It seems like Satan is just so mad and the world's just so mad. They, they got their hammer and they're just banging on us. We can't take it. And it's so hard and we're struggling. But all of a sudden, someone speaks what God is doing. They say, wait, God is bigger than this. And he is actually in this. That though, yes, Satan might be angry. He might be launching crusades against the church of Christ. 
God intervenes and says, all right, the pressure is going to happen, but I'm going to make sure my chisel is right there so that this pressure is actually carving us and cutting us and forming us into the image of Jesus Christ. So that the hardships come and they knock off the rough edges and the things that don't belong and the extra weight that I'm carrying till we finally realize that this is what life is about. So what we're going to see as we continue on in our text is that God is asking, Peter is asking us to embrace an old enemy. That's it. I'm going to leave it right there so that we can keep this tracking as we go through the text. It's asking us to embrace an old enemy. And that enemy is struggle, it's hardship, it's trial, it's tribulation. It's all those things you want to throw in the big pot. This is the enemy that humanity's always said, don't let me drink from that cup. That's going to hurt. That's going to ruin my comforts. And, and Peter is saying, wait a minute, let's embrace this old enemy and see it as a friend. God is using these hardships, not just, well, I guess there's no other way, to have no he's seeing these hardships as designed to make you into the kind of creature that will enjoy heaven immensely because quite frankly we don't like god the way we are in our natural condition and it's taken a little bit of his forming us and bringing us hardship to find him and some of us can acknowledge the fact that we were saved because there were difficult times And God continues that trend of bringing us through hardship, hardship, because we are gradually getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Just to use the age-old illustration of the butterfly ripping out of the cocoon, it's been said that if you help the butterfly out of the cocoon by cutting the cocoon open, it cannot fly. The reason is that the struggle and the push and the hardship of wrestling through that cocoon actually gives the wings the strength it needs to flap and carry its body through the air. And that's what we're saying is that we are being asked to embrace an old enemy that by default we want to sidestep and avoid and pursue comfort. When God is saying, if you want to follow me and become more like me and be made into the creature I've made you to be, it's going to be a little difficult at times. And that's partly why you're becoming outsiders. Because this is going to shape you, make you stronger and make heaven that much more glorious than ever before. So this is actually good news indeed. So how do you get somebody to embrace hardship and say, bring it on. Let me hold on for dear life as it comes. How does that happen? Well, it takes some strategic speaking. It takes some strategic teaching or writing. And that's what Peter does. So he has to tell them first. He has to encourage them. Hey, to embrace this hardship, I know I need to give you guys courage to embrace it. So he's going to encourage them, put courage into them, say, you can do this. So he's going to do that with the next passage, which is very strange. But then he's also going to ask to tell them, hardship needs to be expected. And this is, it's pretty simple. But if you and I get to the point where we actually expect hardship to happen, then it's not going to be very difficult when it does happen. At least not as difficult. What's most difficult is when hardship blindsides us and we're cruising thinking life is great and I've got it under control and it's all sealed up. My retirement's planned and all I got to do is cruise on into heaven. That's when hardship hits you and you, you lose it. What in the world, God? That's not the plan we had. Oh yeah, according to who? <laughs> 
it's we expect it to come that it is so much easier to see coming and then realize, okay, the hammer's coming, but I know the chisel's right here and it's going to shape me. So he's going to tell us, he's going to give us encouragement and then tell us to expect it. That's what he's going to do. So let's get in now where we were. Verse 18, this is where he encourages these exiles, these outsiders. He encourages them and says, hardship will make you feel like an outsider, but you are never outside the ascended reign of Jesus. Keep that in mind as we read this very strange passage. You might feel like an outsider, but you're never outside the ascended reign of Jesus. Or in other words, his control. You're never outside of that. So this is what he says, 18, 318. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went... So real quick, let me recap because it's going to get very strange. I don't want you to be lost. If you're already lost, like, we can't keep going. He, he's simply saying Jesus died and rose from the dead. Okay. So remember Jesus suffered for our sins. He died in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit. Real quick, there's so many commentaries that write lengthy on this. And on all of them come to the conclusion. He's not saying Jesus died in his body, but then he was resurrected spiritually. Like the body say did, but spiritually resurrected. Very not true when you read the rest of scripture. And that's also not what it's saying. Flesh and spirit are actually realms, if you will. It's like an earthly realm and a heavenly realm. And it's, it's simply Peter's way of saying that Jesus died to his life on the earth. And then he was resurrected to enter into God's realm. But he still had a bodily resurrection, okay? But so what he's talking about there is death and resurrection. So now that you're tracking, death and resurrection, being put to death just put in parentheses in the flesh or by the flesh, the Greek also reads and made alive by the spirit in which he went. So in the realm of the spirit by which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through water baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, some of that's clear, some of it's not. I think the sense of what it's saying is very crystal clear. That after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he proclaimed to some spirits in prison. He talked to them, and there's there's something related to the ones of Noah's day, and then something about baptism, and then Jesus is ascended. (laughs) That's what it's saying. Now, there's so many questions like, oh, okay, he went and talked to who? Spirits in prison, what prison, what spirits, and what did he tell them? Uh, Does this mean that when you die, Jesus will come and preach to you and give you a second chance? Or does this mean that um, in between his death and resurrection, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, on Saturday, he descended into the underworld and preached to the spirits there and 
Uh, and what did he say to them? Did he say, hey, uh, final opportunity, everyone, I just died, so you've seen the proof, you want to follow me or not? Or did he basically condemn them, say, yeah, you're all staying in hell forever, so don't even think about it? Um, like, what did he go down and say? When did this happen? Who are the spirits? These are all the, the budding questions that produce so many different ideas, because Peter's clearly not being clear. <laughs> now... In fairness to Peter, uh, you know, this is not a, a weakness of the Bible. What we are doing is we are actually opening someone else's mail and reading it. That's what we do when we get to the New, the New Testament letters, our letters from one person to another group of people. And we are opening these letters and reading them and think like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get all of it. We're missing two sides of the conversation, if you know what I mean. We're, we're, we're kind of looking from the outside in. And so Peter knows something. His audience knows something that clearly we aren't on the same page on. That's why it can get a little confusing here. So here are three of the main ideas. And I'll tell you that two of them are lame and one of them works, in my opinion. So uh, the first idea is that Jesus, and this is very popular, actually, that Jesus descended into Hades between his death and resurrection and there declared his victory to the spirits. So these spirits aren't necessarily people who are dead. They're like the demonic spirits. And he says, between his death and resurrection, he goes down and says, look, you guys can't wreak havoc like you do anymore. I'm in charge now, so see ya. Um, and then he resurrects from the dead after that. Um, the only problem with that is Peter seems clear to me that this event, when he's talking to these spirits, happens after his resurrection. As verse 18 told us, uh, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which... So after he's being made alive in the spirit, in the realm of the spirit, in that realm, after his resurrection, he went and preached to the spirits. So this can't be between the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, it has to be after his resurrection at some time. Uh, the second view, Jesus preached by the Spirit through Noah to sinners. Um, so it would read basically that the spirits who are in prison are spirits who are now in prison. In other words, they weren't in prison back when Jesus preached to them. He preached to them through Noah. So Jesus gave Noah a message and Noah preached to the sinners as he's building his ark, right? He's building the ark, the flood's coming. And he's like, everybody, the flood's coming. You got to repent. You got to get on this boat with me. And that was Jesus preaching through Noah to the souls of these people that are now in prison because of their disobedience. That's, that's one of the views. Um, that one doesn't seem to hold water to me. I get it. <laughs> hold water. <laughs> Uh, because of the ending here in verse 22. Um, what I want you to see is uh, in verse 22, you see this, who Jesus, who has gone into heaven. Notice that word gone, okay? Now, if you go back up to verse 19, it says, I mean, I'm reading from the ESV, so your word, I don't know what your word might say, but in 19, it says, in which he went and proclaimed. So that word went in 19, and the word who has gone in verse 22, that's the same exact Greek word. So when it says he went to proclaim to the spirits, it's the same action, the same going as verse 22. And verse 22 says he went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the went to the spirits in prison is the same action as his ascending to the throne of God. 
Remember how at 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended into heaven and there sits at the right hand of God and told his apostles, hey, go talk about me until I come back. And so Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. As we saw in Hebrews a lot, right? He's interceding for us right there. He's talking to the Father for us. Well, so since he's there, this is the setting in which he talked to the spirits in prison who were the disobedient ones during Noah's day. Well, we know in Genesis and from Jewish writings that are outside the Bible that they had this whole theory about demonic presence on the earth in the days of Noah. So that the spirits we're talking about are these fallen angels, these demonic beings, and that Jesus preached to these spirits, the ones of Noah's day and the ones who are in prison now. He on his ascension at the right hand of God from his throne, he speaks to them. And what does he say to them? Probably something to this effect. Hey, by the way, I'm king now. I died for the sins of the world. I rose from the dead. I've been ascended to God's right hand. I am over everything, including you spirits. Or as Peter says, angels and authorities, kind of like Paul, right? The principalities and the powers of darkness and those authorities jesus is saying i am over you so we take this long road i believe that's the proper way to read this we take this long road to come back and say this was encouraging the church in their hardship why well because we feel like outsiders but wait a minute Peter just told him, in Jesus' realm, nothing is outside his control. Even the evil spirits and angels and principalities and powers and spiritual warfare and the things that are hammering us, he is over all of this. Nothing is outside of his rule. That is encouraging to us as the hammer is coming down. We realize, oh, well, cool. God's got the chisel and is working just fine. Also... It's encouraging because he uses the example of Noah. Well, Noah uh, was the original outsider. Noah was not living like his society. Noah was not looking forward to making an eternal home in the city he lived in. He was looking forward to something else, a coming flood. He was living backward. He was building a boat, getting ready for the flood. And when the rest of the society mocked him and only eight people, his own family responded and the rest of creation, the created animals, when they respond and go on the, on the boat, he was the outsider who suddenly became the insider in the boat. And this is encouraging to the church. Hey, you guys might feel like Noah, but we're on the boat and we're okay. And Jesus is on the throne. So this is the encouragement. This strange passage could either be theologically tense or we can look at it and say it's strangely hopeful in the midst of hardship. So we move on. Of course, there could be much more dialogue and you're welcome to have that with me later um, if you want more. I haven't shared everything because... We would only get as far as this passage. So let's go to verse four, chapter four, verse one now. And this is now where he's going to tell them, hey, expect hardship. The way you're going to embrace it is, okay, I've encouraged you. Now get ready to expect it. If you expect it, if you're looking for it, it won't take you down by surprise. So four, verse one, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he did, he suffered, he had hardship. So if you're going to follow him, you're going to have hardship. That's right there. Uh, But since he suffered, 
arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, get your minds used to the fact that he suffered, you're going to suffer. There was hardship for him, there will be hardship for you. Arm your minds with the same way of thinking so that you're ready for it. Expect it. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer under human passions, but for the will of God. So if we expect hardship, then we can see what's going to happen when it comes to us. And the hardship is going to train us. It's going to essentially wean us off of our compulsive desires to sin. And it's going to help us to look for God's will in the situation. So verse 3 continues telling us to expect it. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, (laughs) those things they do, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So they're surprised, but you don't be surprised, okay? You're living backward now. You're not doing what they're doing. You're not doing what you used to be doing. So now, hey, expect the fact that they're going to look at you rather strangely and say, what, what, you don't value our values in this country? You lived it, You think you're better than us? You're trying to change the way we've been doing things for hundreds of years or decades or whatever. We're a young country. You, you think you're going to change that? And expect that kind of hardship peter says so don't be surprised when people act that way towards you but verse five they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead remember jesus is on the throne and that means hey all lives are going to come into account so verse six for this is why the gospel is preached even those even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh The way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter's not making my job easy tonight with all these weird verses. Uh, This is not, again, uh, saying, okay, this is why the gospel is preached to those who are dead. Okay, so you die. There's going to be a chance you're going to hear the gospel again when you're dead and when you're down there. And if it's even down, right, Uh, when you're there, you're going to get another chance. That's not what this is saying. The Greek mindset, meaning the Roman mindset, was that we are not held accountable for our actions in this life. There isn't a judgment in the afterlife. So they lived the way they wanted. And if there's no judgment in the afterlife, then you're really weird for not doing what we're doing. Because there's no benefit for you in that. So, so what Peter is saying is, look, this is why the gospels preach to those, uh, even to those who are dead. Because he's saying the gospel is preached to people who are alive and people who once were alive, but now are dead. Because when you do die, you will come into account. So the gospel has to be preached to all people. And he's saying there, look, everybody's going to die. They're judged in the flesh the way people are everybody's going to die. Your death doesn't negate the, the point that you're going to be judged one day. The Greek mindset, that's what I was saying, right? They, they're like, you die, you don't get judged. What are you guys talking about, you Christians? But Peter's like, no, you die, you get judged. So that's why we preach the gospel, even though we're all going to die, because that's why it's very important, because we are going to die. So the gospel's preached to those who are going to die so that they might live in the spirit, it says in verse 6, in the spirit the way God does. So I hope that somewhat makes sense to you. Peter's combating a common thought of the day and saying, yeah, even those who are dead, 
the gospel still benefited them even though they died. It's just benefiting them now that they died. Um, so expect hardship. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whomever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so there you have, yet again, another reference to his dominion, his reign, his being on the throne. And Peter calling the church, if we are expecting hardship, then let's team up and strengthen each other. So if you have a gift, use it. Use it to pour into each other's lives. Serve one another. Love one another. Be generous. Be hospitable. Because when we are outsiders, we're going to need these gifts more than ever. Especially our love, generosity, and hospitality. So expect it and live like you're expecting it. We may not be going through hardship right now, but help each other out because you don't know who's hiding what in their messy life. We all come to church with this face. Except for me, I'm always frowning just to be authentic. I'm just kidding. By the way, if you hear people trying to be authentic, they're not authentic. Just a hint. It's a clue. Be wary of uh, people that make a big show of authenticity and unity. Because generally, if you've got to use those words over and over, it's not happening. (laughs) You don't have to talk about authenticity if you're authentic. We don't have to talk about unity if we are unified. Anyways, end rant, end footnote. We'll move on. All right. So now that he's encouraged them in hardship, he's told them to expect hardship. Now he can tell them to embrace the hardship. Bring it in. Big bear hug. So verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. That's why it comes. It tests us. You know, I test my students in school occasionally to see their progress, to see how they're doing. And then you find out with those test results, oh, we're a little blocky over here. We got to chisel that part away a little bit. We got to shape this up. We got to form this a little bit better. That's what tests do. And hardships come to show us where we're at in our progress. We find the worst in ourselves when we're under pressure. Everything's cozy and nice. I can be so peaceful and I can respond to everybody in love and smile. But it's when I'm under pressure and things aren't going well and I'm out of control. That's when I snap and I can say those things. And I can blame people that I really don't think it's their fault. But I just need someone to be blamed because I'm feeling the heat. That's when we find out who we are and the hardships come to test us. What is our shape right now and how can the chisel be properly placed while the hammer is hitting us? So don't be surprised. It comes upon you to test you. This is God using it as though something strange were happening to you. 
So because God is using, because he's the chisel while Satan's hammering away, because he uses our hardship to shape us, we can respond in verse 13. We can rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, if you're an outsider, you are blessed. You're an insider because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you, Peter's footnote, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I mean, obviously that's not God's plan. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And here's his reason for it all. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So judgment has to begin at the household of God. God's using hardship to shape us before it comes to the rest of the world. And that's where, that's where we've been seeing. And this is God saying, it's good. I'm using the hardships. It's okay. I've brought it to my people so we can rest. We can trust that he is holding the chisel while we're being hammered. As further support, chapter 5 gives us the leader, the pastor, the shepherd. Um, we're going to... Let's go. Five one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So we're a flock because sheep are easy to prey upon. The church is easy to prey upon. We need shepherds to protect and lead us, give us help, give us guidance when things are being very hard. Um, And these shepherds have three qualifications. First, they shouldn't be shepherds under compulsion, but willingly. If you have to force your pastor to show up, he's not a shepherd. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So if he basically says, I'm leaving you guys because the other church is paying me more. It's probably not the best shepherd. Verse three, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And if he thinks he's your king and tells you what to do because I said so. Then he's not really a shepherd. He is a carnivore. Wanting the sheep. And when the chief shepherd appears, verse 4, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So keep going forward in your hardship. There's an end. You have a hope. Look forward. And the shepherd should help us keep going that way. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Boy, do they need to hear that. (laughs) Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And look, in our hardships, we experience what it means to be humble. Hardship, one of the things it does is it teaches us where God is and where we are. And that's 
What humility is, is simply recognizing the place of God in the universe and my place in the universe. The true place, not the place I put myself in. My true place is the needy lamb needing God to give me grace. That's my true place. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Hardship brings lots of anxiety. Cast it on him because he cares for you. Look, God doesn't bring the hardship because he doesn't care for you. He brings it to you because he cares for you. It makes you think of a lot of cheesy cliches you've heard your parents say. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, like a hammering hammer, right? Seeking someone to devour, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're not alone in hardship. Every Christian is called to it. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. So you're going to endure hardship as an outsider, but he's going to come and bring us in to his house, to his fellowship. Great song, Richard. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And once again, emphasizing his ascension to the throne. Amen. So we can embrace an old enemy. Hardship, the hammer of Satan, but the chisel of God. And he's using it to shape us into creatures that are heaven ready. Now, I want to turn our attention to, in closing this book, um, to 4 verse 1. It's a really interesting verse, and I think that this sums for me the importance of holding on in hardship. Don't see hardship and just let go of the handle, but hold on. When hardship comes, that means hold on tighter and, and, and go for the ride. Don't say, ah, oh, that means option B is better than option A. No, no, keep going through the hardship and hold on. This is why. Um, back to 4 verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves, expect it. Like he's been saying, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever holds on in hardship has ceased from sin. It does not mean that you've been perfected. I'm suffering so I can't possibly sin. That's not what that means. Don't be too simple there. (laughs) It means this. This is helpful for me. Sin, we all think of as seeking pleasure, but it is equally the avoidance of pain. Think about this. And often, these go at the same time. We're seeking pleasure in order to avoid pain. And sin in this context would be number two. Don't stray from the will of God because there's pain ahead. That, in Peter's thinking, is the sin you overcome if you're willing to go and hold on in hardship. See, like we said at the beginning, by default, we hate act two of our story because we want the comfortable road, not the costly road. We want to solve the problems with the easiest and most minimal amount of effort and cost possible. But God is saying, no, it's the great cost that is shaping you to be like me. And sin can happen when we say, I don't want to go through that kind of pain. And we see this happen. 
Uh, we see people who are unwilling to face pain in so many ways. We have a society that gorges the gut. Because heaven forbid if our stomach rumbles for two hours. I mean, pain can be as little as I'm going to fast today to I'm going to be faithful to my spouse, even though I cannot stand her, him for the last year. Pain can come in a variety of ways and our willingness to go through that, to let the hardship shape us. That is the right track. But we're so often in our act two, wanting to solve everything. We say, you know what? A divorce is so much easier right now. Or eating more than I need, and especially things I don't need to eat, is so much easier right now. Biting off my coworker's head because of their mistake is so much easier right now than working with feedback and helping them through and letting them process better approaches next time. We see this everywhere we look, that so often we act unchristlike because we were, if we search deep down inside ourselves enough, we realize we were actually the cowards who were trying to avoid pain. That's why I said what I said. That's why I did what I did. And this is why holding on in hardship is so critical, not just on a persecution level, although that's huge, but it starts with our little things because we're not going to step up when the pressure is heavy unless we've been able to do it when the pressure was small. And that's why I want to ask in closing, what habits are we holding? What habits are we holding Because when we are willing to establish small habits that say, I'll take the pain over the easy way. When those little choices are made on a day-to-day basis, we grow our endurance muscle to where we can hold on tightly through greater hardship and greater hardship and greater hardship. Man, Sports is beautiful in this way because when the pressure is on, you see some players choke and some players excel, especially on the championship level. Why is it that some excel and some choke? Well, the best players excel in pressure because they have mastered the little pieces of their game over and over and over and over and over on an everyday practice basis, doing it right, going through the hard way of learning things so that when the pressure's on, they don't have to think about the right thing to do. They're not performing like actors. They are being the character of the story. They're being themselves. This is who they are because of their little habits of choosing the harder way over and over and over. Hard work, right practice over and over and over so that when the pressure's on, there's no, oh, there's two seconds on the clock. Oh my gosh, hurry it up. It's just everything is so smooth because they're thinking about so little. And we can become people who under pressure and in hardship react like Jesus because we're choosing those little habits and we're not thinking, we're not overwhelmed all the time, but we're, hey, I, I got used to serving my neighbor. I got used to that. That's easy. That's cakewalk. Bring on something harder. That's why I believe that God uses hardships in our lives to shape us to be more like him. And that's when the, like act three in the Pixar movies, act three comes and it's the test. Did the character learn the lesson? Are they going to choose the hard costly route? 
Well, there's that moment when they have to demonstrate it. And we realize he did learn the lesson. And in Finding Nemo, well, if you haven't watched the movie, I'm sorry. I just bored you. But it's when he has to let go of his son who wants to save Dory caught in the net of fish. You guys may recall towards the end, the fish are going up. Dory, Marlin, the old Marlin wanted to protect his son at all costs. Don't do that. It's dangerous. But he lets him go. And allows Nemo to save all of those fish at the co- at a great cost, a great potential cost. But at that moment, we realize Marlin learned what he was meant to learn on his adventure. He didn't take the easy route of just let them all die. Let's go home, son. I've got you back. What habits will we hold to help us hold on in hardship? We're about to go to communion, and we have a perfect model here. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane was at that moment where he understood the humanness of himself and said, father, I want the comfortable route. Take this cup of suffering from me. But he was also able to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he definitely took the hard, costly route. But what we learn in watching him is that the easy route is the merely human route. The costly, hard route is the hero's route. And that's what God is forming us all to be. His kings and queens of his kingdom. In your garden of Gethsemane, are you willing to pray, Father, Your will be done, even if it's the road I don't want. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to rise above that fallen part of us that constantly seeks to preserve ourselves and choose the easy route. Liberate us from that. Help us to trust you in what you're doing. So, Lord, go before us that we may follow in your steps. Go behind us to steer us when we stray and go beside us as our strength and our joy in all hardship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.